Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This is a show about why people do the things they do. Now, it isn't quite obvious to anybody why they do the things that they do. Uh, It's not obvious to me. It's not obvious to you. We can come up with rationalizations about why we do the things we do. Um, But it's not at all obvious what the answer to that question is. But I do believe that through conversation, uh, usually one-on-one conversation, we can come to a mutual realization of a higher truth rather than the truth that our mind tells us is the truth. So this show is about this dialogue, a very, very ancient practice. It's been going on for a very, very long time of coming together with another agent, another person who has this awareness and coming to the truth through mutual inquiry. Inquiry. There's a lot of different themes that I talk about in this show, but the show doesn't have a theme. There is no specific thing that we're getting to with this show. Uh, We're discovering the truth in process, and you as a listener can also play in this discovery, in this mutual discovery, uh, because I don't think it's only in this one-on-one conversation we have, but it's also a global collective conversation, as long as we have this intention to aim towards the truth. So if you do want to join this conversation, I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I, and you can just tweet out to me questions, you can tweet out to me things you don't like, things you do like about this episode. You can also send me DMs. My DMs are open. Uh, And just join the conversation. I'm constantly asking questions on Twitter, so you can answer any of those questions as well. Uh, And if you do like this show, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the other major podcasting platforms. Uh, And go ahead and subscribe. And if you're really feeling generous, go ahead and leave a review as well. So come join us on this discovery for truth. Uh, and it's fun. We, we can get to the, to, the, to the really juicy parts of life uh, as long as we don't have an agenda, uh, and, well, except for the agenda to find the truth. Uh, so welcome on this discovery of truth, and come join the process. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Jacob Falkovich. Uh, he writes a blog called Put a Number on It, and you can find it by uh, searching for put a number on it uh, and it's actually www.putanumonit uh, so put a num on it uh, so really great to have you on the on the show uh, welcome yeah thanks a lot i'm excited to be here and chat yeah so i originally got in touch with you because you wrote this great tweet uh, thread on free information principle by Carl Friston and its connection to psychedelics and um, and it was just very interesting for me so I wanted to invite you on and, and kind of go, go deeper into it and put it into a uh, podcast format so how did you first start getting interested in in this theory so I think the thing that initially turned me on is Scott Alexander who writes Leicester Codex uh, he wrote a review of the book Surfing Uncertainty about this general idea that everything your brain does is trying to predict incoming inputs at different levels. So this predictive processing or predictive coding theory of the brain, that, that's really what it does, is makes predictions, it gets error signals coming in, compares them, and maybe it updates the higher level models. It gets too many errors, and then 
Scott became really fascinated, and also I did. It kind of felt like a simple idea, but once you start taking it a bit seriously, you notice how it touches on everything from explaining how you shoot the basketball to what depression is to, like you said, machine learning, etc. And then you can see more and more things converging on that idea. So people were talking about psychedelics and then even ideas like know, Jordan Peterson's ideas about order and chaos, suddenly all of them are converging together. Um, it is a bit, this is a good reason for caution here. Like if you have sort of very simple model that suddenly everything you see falls into it, that could be kind of dangerous. It may be <laughs> if we are all way overthinking and cramming too many things into this paradigm without really being careful about it. I started writing a series of articles on the Ribbon Farm blog with Lentatesh about trying to cram basically all of social behavior into predictive processing. Because in Ribbon Farm, you have the permission to not be too scientifically rigorous. Everyone knows that's not the place for epistemic statuses. But yeah, so all of it is hard to tell how much of it is really true and how much of it is overfitting. But if any of this is true, it is very, very exciting. Mm. And the thing that first drew me to it, it I read an article in Wired about it. Um, and it was right after I had finished this book, Behave by Robert Sapolsky. And in that book, he says that behavior is rewarded based on an external reward. Um, and it seems like somewhat contrary to like an external dopamine reward. You receive this dopamine reward and then you feel great. And then, you, then you're motivated to do other challenges. Um, and then something in the, in the, uh, the free information theory made it seem like they had a nuance to that, which is that all this information is coming in. So it's really about improving our ability to predict or the purpose of thought is not to gain some sort of externally mediated reward, but it's actually to improve our ability to make predictions. Is that accurate? Someone. So, I mean, ultimately if you just sit and you only predict, you don't get anywhere. So there are two parts to it. The first part is you have some, evolved priors. So let's say there, there are two bacteria and one of them predicts that it's going to encounter a lot of sugar and a little acid. And the other one, and this prediction is not conscious, it's just something in it kind of causes it to act as if it anticipates and is well matched to that one. And the other one, something about its structure predicts a lot of acid and a little sugar. So the one that gets to eat the sugar and not get dissolved by the acid, that's the one that's going to reproduce. So we basically have in the hardware of our brains some priors like built in on a very hardware level. For example, you know, my brain predicts that my body will stay at 98.6 degrees. It will predict that I will be socially popular and sexy and well-fed and safe from predators. So you kind of have those top-level priors, and if you manage to navigate yourself to such a world that that's really the signals that are coming in, then you feel very happy. And you can also catch this out as good predictions. The second part is predictions are only worth it in terms of uh, predicting the consequences of your actions. So really you're trying to predict, like there are two ways to predict that uh, I'm eating tasty pizza. 
One is just hallucinating it. So that's kind of like a limit of how far that gets you. And the other one is if I predict it very hard, I might have a model that says, oh, I can like stand up and walk to the pizza place and I hand them some money and they will give me pizza and then I will put it to my mouth. So you can make predictions come through by action. And that's kind of the core of what you're doing as an animal. So basically, as far as you care about building accurate models of the world, it's about, oh, if I understand the world, if I model it correctly, if I'm constantly like not surprised by things that are happening, it means I can act effectively in it and make things happen that my hyper priors want to happen. And this it gets into something I've been thinking a lot about recently is about the difference between, you know, we're having this conversation. The thing that I identify most with is this verbal capacity to express knowledge and communicate and understand and have a conversation. But then there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going on within me that is unconscious and that I don't have any control over. For example, the um, alpha motor neurons that are innervating my tongue um, I'm just giving them a high level command in order to speak, but all the little, all the, you know, millions of neurons that are going into that action of speech are not under my conscious control whatsoever. Um, and so if we can, so what about this unconscious part, unconscious versus conscious, like where does that fit in? Does it even matter whether we're conscious of these things or because it seems like most, uh, a lot of it comes from this intuition, this knowing that we have that's not verbal. Um, but then where does this verbal capacity come in or even this visionary capacity come in? Yeah, well, so this sort of predictive processing is supposed to be happening at all levels. So maybe your conscious brain starts with the general prediction of, I'm going to say something about the difference between consciousness and unconscious systems. Now, then there's, so it creates this very top-level prediction. One level below it, you have a part that predicts, oh, I should be moving my mouth and my larynx and making sounds. And then some lower part is going to generate phonemes and then kind of matches, oh, if you're saying the word tomato, that's weird. That's like, I didn't expect to be saying that word when talking about consciousness. If I'm saying some other word, they do. And then all the way down to a part that predicts you know, the muscle tension in your tongue to create the phoneme that you were thinking about. So uh, let me just put my phone on silent here. I did not predict to be getting messages and I forgot to do it. Um, I do also, kind of going back to the original thing about your prediction mostly guiding actions, I think that Most of your unconscious systems are about guiding action. That's what's important. But then we have this reason capacity where you call it like system two or your consciousness. And that's the part that can think explicitly of like, oh, I care about having accurate models of the world. And then that part is always surprised by the fact that all of your unconscious systems are working against it. So I think you see it, for example, in political beliefs. Like, it doesn't really affect my life one way or another, what my opinion is on the minimum wage. No one asked me. Uh, I'm not even a citizen of the US, an immigrant. I'm not a senator. I don't have a political platform. So it really makes sense for me to say things about the minimum wage that would make me liked in my community. That's actually effective. It will get me friends. It will get me laid. And 
then if you have this kind of conscious system of like, no, I care about true beliefs about the world, including about complex political economical issues, that part is trying to figure out true things, whether or not they're actionable, and keeps being frustrated by your desire to be signaling for status and all the other things. Especially when you notice them in other people, like, don't you care about the truth? And it's like, well, <laughs> some part of you does. <laughs> part of me cares about the truth, but a much deeper part of me cares about fulfilling basic needs of housing, food, sex, um, intimacy, all these different things. And all those things are mediated by this kind of status thing as well. Yeah, that's actually... Like the question of what should they say about minimum wage to be popular in my social circle? That's a very difficult question <laughs> that requires a very sophisticated model. It's not like a very obvious thing. It's not like you're being lazy by answering that question instead of... Yeah, maybe answering that is a lot harder than having some Econ 101 or Marxism 101 answer to this. Interesting. Uh, like your brain is not being lazy it's actually solving hard questions when it's saying ignorant things about political issues <laughs> and so this brings into mind like are the are the hardest things are the hardest problems or the hardest predictive things are those things done more by this unconscious deeper layers of our body or are they done more by the conscious um it seems to me by what you just said that it makes more sense that the conscious part takes on the easier questions and the unconscious takes on the deeper questions and the more difficult ones. Well, necessarily. So I guess, like if you can update some like really high level models, like the very idea that reality is not like you perceive it, that your models of reality are filtered by, you know, your evolved biases, your perception, etc. So you get there from anywhere, like from Buddhism to rationality to just sitting quietly and contemplating. That, like, that's a high-level model that can, then it can have massive impacts on everything else. And you're not going to get there through intuition alone. Like, I don't think a dog can mm -hmm. get there. Maybe like, there are really important things that you can only achieve once you can make some major, major impacts like that. Or you know, major updates to models like that. Um, Interesting. Yeah, easy and hard is a weird kind of measure to apply to this, I know. But some things are obvious to some people and very hard for other people to grasp and vice versa. There could be a conversation we could have about um, the intervariability so each like within primates and, and the, the difference between my brain, my gene expression in your brain and the gene expression in your brain uh, is larger than the entire difference between the human species and primates. Um, so like there's greater inter individual variancy between humans than there is for the entire species of apes versus the our species of primates versus the species of humans. That's something I read in, in Robert Sapolsky. So we could talk about how <coughs> something related to that in terms of free energy, or we could go down the path of uh, psychedelics and what the relevance of is to psychedelics. What do you, what do you find more interesting? So I think they both tie together because um, one of the main researchers of psychedelics is Robin Carhart Harris, 
of I think the Imperial College in London. So he has a he says that there's a thing you can measure about the brain from the outside called brain entropy, which is basically I just put just like helmet of electrodes and basically measures what's the information content in your brain activity. So if there's some very predictable pattern in your brain, like the left side left lights up and then at the front side and then the left side ends at the same frequencies at the same power that's very low entropy. And if it's like, you know, things light up in all different frequencies in an unpredictable way, it's very high entropy. So uh, a dog has higher entropy than a warm, a chimpanzee has higher brain entropy than a dog. Uh, a human has higher entropy than a chimp, but a baby human has more brain entropy than an adult human. Mm. Also, uh, you have lowest entropy when you're in a coma, higher in deep sleep, higher in REM or wakefulness, and the highest when you're experiencing a psychotic episode or on psychedelics. Mm. So wait, I want to make so, that clear. So the highest entropy state is when you're on psychedelics or when you're on a, uh, in a psychotic episode. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're very, very young. So the idea is that stable, basically, rhythms and patterns in your brain, from the inside, they feel like having a stable model of reality. Like you know how things look, so you perceive them a certain way, you know how things should behave, you're doing things, they come out as expected, and you don't learn a lot. Mm. So if your brain is high entropy, it also means that different parts of it are connected to each other, kind of like a lot more flexible. You have a lot fewer strong predictions about what is happening, but you have a lot of room to learn. And they say that the baby's brain is the most entropic in the animal kingdom because... It's almost like your brain's hardware as a baby is set to knowing, okay, I live in a very, very complex world and I don't even know what sort of general models will fit. So some things maybe, you know, like you almost have a propensity to learn how to recognize faces quickly. So you probably have like a bit of built-in hardware about faces, but for a lot of other things, then like what you were saying, there's a big difference between us, although maybe not a lot if we listen to the same podcast and read the same book, (laughs) is because we started as this, babies with massively entropic brains who can then learn really different, very complex models of reality that aren't set too much ahead of time by just our hardware. And then as we get older, calcify and fall in more patterns that feel from inside like you know what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Except that you start accumulating like, you know, if your models aren't perfect, and they probably aren't because the world is very difficult and complex, you start accumulating error signals. You feel like confused and anxious. Something's not fit in. And then Carhart Harris says, well, take a bunch of psychedelics. Your brain heats up, becomes entropic again, and then hopefully settles down into <laughs> a better pattern that resolves some of the, you know, errors that you've accumulated. Yep. And... and- that's really interesting. It, it's about, um, it feels, um, I'm, th- I'm considering taking this intense psychedelic called Iboga. Have you ever heard of it before? Uh, I think so. It's, the, it's from an African plant, right? Yeah. Is it's, it's called Ibogaine? Yeah, Ibo- Ibogaine is the derivative, the, the, the chemical derivative of it. Iboga is the root bark. 
Um, and most primarily, this isn't the reason that I'm going to use it, but most, most people use it in order to get off of uh, opiates um, and uh, have a, uh, there's no detox associated with it. So you basically, you plan your withdrawal, you're about to, about to uh, withdraw, and then you take Ibogaine, uh, a large dose of Ibogaine, and puts you into a flood state. It's a very difficult trip, uh, uh, but you don't feel any withdrawal. And you come out of it three days later, basically. I mean, you, it's eight hours. The first eight hours is like a waking dream state where you, some people go back through their entire history and all the traumatic issues that they've had. Um, they go through it all. The second eight hours is like kind of like an in-between state. And the third eight hours is like, okay, I really want to go to sleep. I've been up for this long, but I can't go to sleep because it's a stimulant. Um, and then three days later, you feel like you're a newborn. You all, all of your, all of your wires are reset. Your, uh, your, the for heroin. Your, if you're on heroin, then your receptors are essentially reset to the to the beginning state. Um, and uh, so it sounds interesting because it also brings to mind what is the difference between a bad trip and a good trip, and also like the psychotic break is like maybe the uh, somebody having a psychotic break is actually just learning a lot in that moment, but then it's very uncomfortable in that moment, but then eventually homo homeostasis re reestablishes itself. And then it has more kind of insight into the nature of reality and, and that reality itself is uh, very complex. Cause the thing I'm getting from what you just said is that reality itself is highly complex, highly nonlinear and our brains, a baby's brain is born with high entropy because evolution has designed it or evolution has resulted in that so that um, the baby can learn a lot really quickly and then eventually become an adult. But then that calcification process happens where, where our prediction is not accurate of reality. And then psychedelics, can, I wonder, has the guy that you mentioned, has they, have they done any studies on people who take a lot more psychedelics or people who meditate a lot or people who do these kind of uh, psychotechnologies, whether they have more um predictive capability with their thoughts um it's a good question so i'm not sure so there haven't been i think that many studies of like official academic studies of psychedelics in healthy people mm -hmm. so what carter harris and also he recently did a collaboration with friston are talking about is you have very obvious disorders of mental rigidity. So if you're addicted to smoking, you're going to have this just rigid loop of craving a cigarette, giving in, then you feel bad, then you crave it again. If you're depressed or even something like PTSD, you probably have some deep model in your brain that the world is unsafe and violent and you need to be very vigilant and defensive, and you fail to update. Like you're stuck in that mode even though you're back home among family and friends and your life is not actually threatened, but you keep reacting as though it is. And then there are some initial studies of you know, MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for smoking cessation and depression that say, like, okay, the main thing they do is the same. They kind of help you break out of those rigid patterns. Now, you can say, okay, those are clinical problems. If you're depressed or PTSD, it's a serious issue. How about if mm. you just you just have some persistent like models about I don't know that like 
the half of the country that are against you politically are really evil people and all of the bad things happen because of them and you can suffer from a lot of confirmation bias so that everything you see in the newspapers confirms that theory so i would say and this is not something that i mean the respectable researchers talking about this is kind of me just running with it you said oh that's somewhat like a disorder of mental rigidity mm. you have some fixed thoughts you don't really integrate new information because with confirmation bias you fit it all in and say oh look the out group is being mean to the nice people again and you kind of can't break out of it and it's probably not making you very happy if you're just outraged on twitter all the time so and I mean, it's not really making accurate predictions of the world and that's probably not the correct and true model of what's happening in the world is that there are bad people who conspire against the good people and that's the sort that's a very simple model that's probably not mm. actually that accurate and so yeah i would say maybe uh those are places where psychedelics can help i have a friend ayla who took a lot of psychedelics and said that it helped her overcome a lot of uh just like break out of a lot of rigid ideas that she had both about like who she is and like the trauma associated with mm. her family and all sorts of things this is the most <clears throat> interesting thing interesting debate that i've i've had recently in my own head uh is so i can take this iboga and it'd be very intense be very difficult probably confront most of my fears, confront a lot of difficult uh, things that I've experienced. Or I could do a 10-day meditation retreat, probably have a similar experience. Um, and uh, and then the difference between those kind of like, and I, I worry about the iboga because iboga has some heart complications and uh, and I've been doing all these tests to make sure my heart is strong enough, but it turns out it's really, it's, it's very, it's I think it'll be very, it's probably not going to, my heart is probably healthy enough to do it. Um, but th there is a sudden death from cardiac arrest for the people experience from it. And, um, and so, so I'm thinking maybe do a meditation retreat instead of that. And then the difference between doing something like that and then turning my everyday life, doing meditation once a day, which I've done for a long time. It's not like I'm not doing that with things, but like the difference between little small changes in this entropy and then it makes me think about all the little, so there's, you know, there's psychedelics like way up here at the top of the chain in terms of you take a large hero's dose of mushrooms, you're going to have an experience that will be very, it's like very reliable. It's very, um, it's just going to happen that you're going to confront something inside of your own being that may be very difficult, maybe uh, full of ecstasy. Um, and then, you know, lower down the chain, there's all these other techniques we can do like meditation, just focusing on the breath, redirecting our attention on the breath. Uh, chanting, uh, dancing, all these little things. And those are like little tiny blips. Um, but they seem, if I do a lot of them over time, it seems like I become less rigid. My, um, it feels like I get younger as I get older. Um, and uh, so it's just interesting. I don't know if you have anything to say about that, about all that yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. First, there was an excellent article uh, by, I think his name is Matthew Johnson, or maybe Michael Johnson. Yes, Michael E. Johnson of the Qualia Research Institute about neuroanneling. So his model was, was like your brain accumulates kind of error signals. In this case, it's literal energy, uh, kind of just like energy potentialing. 
your neurons. Um, and then like the way if you have, you have a sword, you go, you bash the hands in the head, then your sword accumulates stresses and little cracks. If you hit it up just above the melting point, it then cools back down to a more stable state. Mm. This is the same way you accumulate errors in your head, you can increase entropy and then settle back down. And he does mention all of those things. He says meditation does that, has a good theory of like why exactly it does that. Just because meditation, you basically observe your entire field of consciousness, but without positive or negative effect and without fitting it into any models, you just kind of observe it as it is. So you're saying, ah, I'm observing this and this proves what I always thought about those people. Then kind of like increases entropy without like flowing down into any of the well-worn grooves of, you know, your aversions and attachments or your models of the world. Um, and I think you also mentioned chanting and dancing, uh, any sort of intense physical activity. Uh, obviously, the psychedelics can just like, pump in a lot of entropy from all over. I remember I listened just a while ago to a podcast, Sam Harris podcast with uh, Dr. Roland Griffiths, mm. who's running the Psychedelics Research Center at Johns Hopkins. It's the first major psychedelic research program in the US since the 60s. And he mentioned there was a study on long term meditators. So they went to a also like a week long or a 10 day long retreat for experienced meditators. And then half of them took psilocybin towards the end. And the half that did, I think mentioned that uh, they found the retreat more meaningful. It had more lasting impact on their lives, <laughs> etc. So again, you can look up that study. <laughs> Maybe the answer is, ¿Por qué no los dos? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I have that, uh, that, that, that thought has crossed my mind and that probably be a good preparation to do the Iboga and do the 10 day meditation retreat beforehand. Um, but uh, that's really interesting. Well, that, and there's such a, like, particularly among long-term medita meditators, the ones that I've worked with is they say, they kind of say psychedelics or substances are not really um, accepted means to spiritual insight. Um, and it's interesting. And I wonder whether a lot of that is more because of kind of a habit that didn't get that entropy from all the practices they've done or whether it's because it does actually have some truth to it. What do you think? So I don't have that much experience with deep meditation. It is real. I have friends who've done a lot of psychedelics and they say, well, of course, meditators say that it's basic sun cost fallacy, right? If they like, <laughs> knew they could like, instead of wasting 10 years like learning that stuff, they could have just like taken a bunch of acid. Uh, but then most of the people you know who are meditators saying like, no, 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 it is very different. Yep. Uh, you can't. And then probably the people who would have, like, I prefer to trust people like Sam Harris, seems to have decades of meditation and also large doses of psychedelics in his experience. Mm. And he does see them as somewhat complementary. I do think that your brain can also be too entropic. Like you are smarter than a baby. You know things about the world. Yeah. Um, kind of going, so I don't know if something like depression or PTSD is a failure to break out of rigid modes of thinking and something like psychosis is a failure to settle back into stable modes of thinking. 
don't know, maybe if you're an experienced meditator and you're not really noticing that if you do get signals in your life that oh you're confused about things like maybe you have a relationship with a close person and they just keep surprising you in negative ways you keep having interactions that don't go well or in your career with other people like if you do notice signs of error i would take that as a sign i'm like i'm not understanding something and maybe i've accumulated enough information from all those mm. bad surprising interactions that i need to hit my brain up and let them integrate and if you're not experiencing all of that, then I don't know, maybe your brain is doing fine here, <laughs> successfully minimizing free energy and predicting inputs. Interesting. And I guess uh, either is there a, I'm sure a psychologist would have something to say about this, but is there a way to do a self-evaluation on whether your brain is in that kind of, whether your brain no, no longer needs entropy in order to fit yourself into a successful, healthy life? Uh, or whether there are some things that are needed. For me, I, when I ask myself that question of like, yeah, there are a few things in my life where I'm just not, where I'm not, there's something blocking me from understanding it. And previously when I faced these blocks, it's so interesting because you just, you it seems so difficult and challenging to break through them. But most of the time when you actually understand them and you dissolve these blocks, um, it just happens very quickly and harmlessly and it's just like oh oh that's what i've been doing and then it leads to this to this behavior which in many ways like that that happens a lot in psychedelics but the issue with psychedelics is something you talked about earlier which is that it's so <clears throat> so much at one time uh that it's difficult to you know three days later when you've stabilized again to actually with at least with the conscious mind to bring that in and be like this is what i learned this is what i learned um you know and like actually take what you learned and then bring it into life yeah, I think also, so once you take psychedelics, then I guess you are a bit more vulnerable to updating towards what you actually experience, mm -hmm. like in that state when your mind is more open. Um, so it's like a big example for me, which turned out to be very positive because all my experiences were in a very good set and setting. Now, I was like, I'm in an open relationship. And I was feeling some jealousy. And I was trying to think, okay, like some part of me understands that the jealousy is kind of an evolutionary vestige, that there's really not a lot of actual risk that I will, you know, raise a child that doesn't share my genes because mm -hmm. someone like impregnated my wife, etc. And I still felt the jealousy and I had the tension. And then I think I was on psychedelics and I started cuddling with someone, with a guy. And like both of them looking very happy and smiling at me. And I didn't really pay too much attention to it at the time. So I think, oh, this is cool, they're cuddling. And then a few months later, I like, realized I stopped feeling uh, jealousy, at least as much as I did before, which obviously makes being in an open relationship a lot more pleasant uh, <laughs> and easy. But then I could also imagine, oh, what if I'd been in a situation where like, I would have seen something that would have triggered jealousy and I would have experienced that as also being negative. Like I could have actually just updated in the other way and resolve this tension by saying, oh no, everything I think cognitively about jealousy, how it like doesn't make sense in the world of birth control and genetic testing and, you know, trust in your wife, etc. No, that's actually wrong. I should actually just go with my intuition. Mm. Yeah, this is something I've noticed and I've seen a lot in San Francisco 
because I believe that it's impossible to live as a human being without creating an in group and an out group. I think like it's built into us to now the, the, the maybe the choice that we have is how small the in group is or how big the out group is or, you know, that's that's but it seems that it is a basic nature of, of a human being to create an in group and an out group. <clears throat> and so it does seem like in San Francisco, there are going to be new cults that are getting started because of this new found, you know, I mean, it's been going on since the sixties, but it seems like we're coming back into it um, where these experiences, particularly if they're mixed with this type of PTSD or early childhood trauma. Um, and then you add psychedelics on top of it, then creates a intuition based group where everybody's an in group. And, you know, it depends on, on how, tight that group is or how open they are and stuff like that. But it does seem like that, that is going to happen more often. Um, might just be a guess of mine. Uh, but it's something about this intuition and like psychedelics, then maybe just increasing our ability, our affinity towards a particular, uh, value that we already have. Um, and then going further down that path of that value. So maybe what would it, maybe if you gave, um, psychedelics to Ku Klux Klan members, would they just get more firm in their beliefs about who is the in-group and who, who is the out-group? I wonder, that'd be interesting. Maybe the answer is you take a Ku Klux Klan member and a Black Power, Black Panther member and you see them in like a very cozy room and give both of them MDMA. <laughs> yeah. and so, and some people ask, what would you put on and a billboard above the highway. Okay, take MDMA with the out group. Uh-huh. <laughs> Feel unconditional love for <laughs> the people who sneer at you on Reddit. That would be very interesting to see a Ku Klux Klan member and a Black Panther member taking MDMA together. Um, that would be, it would feel like it would be very tense. Um, yeah. See, this is, like, why... why why isn't science doing that experiment? Why are we like stuck? There's like psychology. Why is psychology, you know, digging for like grand priming or power posing or whatever, instead of giving KKK and Black Panther people MDMA? It's like, are we wasting our time with all the nonsense? Yeah. I, and I, I do agree to, to, to some extent that, that, that it's just ridiculous that, because this thing, this Iboga, Ibogaine is like extremely powerful for help it's not a cure but it is extremely powerful for people to get off of heroin um and it should and and you know mdma is extremely powerful for ptsd and and all these different things and it's like way way beyond the rates at which uh just normal therapy is is doing for these conditions yeah i don't know i could I mean, there is a sort of sense in being guided by the Hippocratic principle of first do no harm. Uh, so I understand why people are... Yeah, so I do get a sense of, for example, a lot of people that I know, like whenever I write about psychedelics or something, I often get responses about it. Oh, aren't you worried that you'll take psychedelics and start believing in woo? Mm-hmm. Or something like all oh, your rationalist atheism will go nothing and my thought is always like no if you're a rationalist atheist that spend a lot of time thinking about this you have to slack basically the robustness to take some risks with your brain 
I feel like, you know, like my life is pretty good. I have a good career. I have good friends. I feel like I have a good grasp of the world and learning things. A lot of my friends also. And I must have a tendency that like once your life is pretty good to be more risk averse. I think, oh, why would I want to, uh, you know, if just my day-to-day kind of experience of the world, like I'm always at the seven out of 10. I never get really sad and upset. Like why would they want to risk it? Um, so yeah, the people who are in the most trouble are the ones who turn into alternative uh, things like Ibogaine. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends whose lives seem to be going pretty well, except for a couple of minor things. And they go to therapy a lot. And can I say, like, do you think the therapy is effective? Yeah. It's certainly not harmful. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And get a sense of they actually probably don't want anything too potent because if your life is the coverall pretty well. Interesting. And this kind of gets into what mo- motivates people to do really, you know, become externally very successful or kind of achieve high places of status it seems like a lot of them are motivated by kind of intense experiences that things are not okay as they are and they need to prove themselves and kind of um uh, show that that there is a reason that and it seems like a lot of these things kind of come from these experiences of trauma and stuff um what do you think of that yeah i feel I'm actually, I feel quite a big disconnect between myself and almost everybody else who's interested in that stuff in that I think my life has been pretty charmed. I don't think I have a lot of trauma. I haven't, I'm very low on neuroticism. I don't deal with a lot of negative emotion. So when people who are into Buddhism or psychedelics or even they start from the premise of life is suffering, and I always feel like, but, but is it though? I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's pretty good. Like suffering, I don't know. Is it not that my suffering? Uh. Um, and yeah, and I also get the sense of, and I feel like I'm not very ambitious in my kind of day job career. Uh, and because I have a strong desire to like, drop my current nice job that I'm good at and is reasonably lucrative and gives me a lot of free time to read random papers about psychedelics. I have a strong desire to drop it and do a startup that has like a 10% chance of being massive and 90% chance of being a failure. So, yeah, I'm personally approaching this out of curiosity and long-term thinking. Um, Like, well, I don't know, we might all live for a long time, even longer than we think. Mm -hmm. So... There are kind of important questions about, you know, the real quality of your experience. Mm. It's worth being curious about it. But for me, it doesn't come out of a strong need to fix something that is wrong in the world or in me. And so maybe I'm less driven than other people who have that. And it does seem that most people who are deeply into those sort of exploration are driven by like a wound, that, a wound that needs healing. Mm. Like that. That's really interesting. I don't know. What's your motivation for getting into this? Now you've mentioned on some podcasts that 
been driven primarily by curiosity and the search for truth? No, it's also it's also got a wounds that need healing as well. Um, and there are just certain things in my life that are just not that are not that that they haven't been updated. That there's these models that are mostly unconscious that are that are very old um, and just are not not adapting themselves to what is required. And as I get older, they become more and more challenging to deal with. Like when I was younger, they weren't they weren't a big deal. Um, uh, but, but now they're starting to get more and more of a big deal. And it's like, I, I want to find resolution for these things. Um, and, uh, so that's my, my main, <laughs> and also curiosity. I'm intensely curious as to a lot of, a lot of, a lot of different stuff that is no practical, <laughs> practical value in my life. Um, uh, so I, I guess I would say both, but I think the stuff that got me into particularly, uh, yeah, no, it's hard. Cause I've been in, I've been in therapy since I was eight, eight years old. Um, so I've always had this overlay of, uh, of psychoanalysis and psycho, uh, uh, psychotherapy and of that, that how does the mind work and stuff like that. But I rejected a lot of it and actually found my way into meditation and yoga as a part of that rejection. Um, and now I'm going back into that. So it's, uh, so yeah, it's, it's complicated for me, I'd say. Yeah. Also, when I do have somewhat of a transhumanist motivation, I think that things can be like way, way, way better. Um, but like a Nick Bostrom, who's a philosopher who mostly writes about existential risk and all the ways that you know we can make ourselves go extinct very soon. Uh, he also has a short essay called "Letter from Utopia." So it's like a letter to the people of today um you know the people who like so wise and blissful and integrated that like, we can't even approach that and kind of get a sense that yes the goal isn't to bring i mean it is an important goal to like bring everybody who's suffering to the level of well-being of i don't know and like accomplished the person in the Western world who's also like mindful and in a happy relationship, but also it's like a lot of upside that's worth reaching for. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot beyond what we currently consider to be a very happy life or mm-hmm. a happy community. Do you think this is a question that I always struggle with is is it important to elicit your goals and make them very clear or is it is the oh, this goes into the free the what we've been talking about is is reality so nonlinear and so difficult to predict that it might actually make more sense to not really make your goals clear because reality will just make meets of them and then maybe your focusing on those goals will then make you ignore other parts of life uh, that could have been an opportunity. Um, it's a good question. I don't know if there's the really hesitate in something like this to kind of give one blanket answer. Again, for example, like for me, again, going back, letter from Utopia doesn't have a lot of detail. It's, it's almost like a template just to say like, hey, more is possible. And then you can use it to fill in what you think utopia would be like. And this could be a useful question. Like, okay, I mean, in utopia, do we have 
I don't know, do we have like, are people Catholic in Utopia? Does that feel like it fits? Are people capitalist in Utopia? Mm. So it's not like a very particular rigid goal to strive forward to. It's kind of like a reminder of, you know, keep thinking about the upside. Um, for some like more specific things, it is important to stick to goals. I don't know, I'm a bit of a skeptic about, I have a friend of mine, Spencer Greenberg, who gave a talk about intrinsic values. He said, well, there's things that you pursue like money because, uh, well, they're just instrumental. You just need money to achieve other things. But then if you like really look deep in your soul, you will find your like true intrinsic values, the things you really care about. And then like, well, some of them, you can get other people to help you. So for example, if your goal is, uh, is you know, to help the most needy people in the world and be an effective altruist, people will cooperate with you on that. And I'm actually very skeptical that if you dig really deep into your motivation system and peel off the layers, you will discover something like helping the people of the world. I think you will discover some hardware circuits that, like at the base level, there's just some like built-in hardware circuits that are like are just optimizing for the level of a neurotransmitter somewhere. And above them, you're probably all like your real goals are you know, inclusive genetic fitness or survival or something like that. Um, hmm. I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical of taking some goals and believing that, oh, this goal I have that actually cashes out in terms of things happening out in the world, measurable outcomes, changes in society is in some sense like a true and deep goal. Hmm. Like my personal inclination is to always live room for updating and changing those mm. kind of seeing them as useful targets but not just the be all and end of what you really want mm -hmm. interesting well cool that seems like a good place to wrap up thank you so much for coming on the show um and how can people find out more about uh your writing i can follow me on twitter at yashkaf y-a-s-h-k-a-f um, I've recently got really into Twitter and probably almost everything else creative or interesting that I come up with, which is not a lot, but whatever I do come up with <laughs> will probably end up in as a link on Twitter. I'll uh, put a reminder here to put the original tweet thread that you uh, wrote about this. Yes, hopefully it will turn into a more coherent blog post with illustrations. Uh, but without a fixed timeline. That's cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure, sure. It was a pleasure. Yep. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be publishing episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the morning. If you did enjoy this episode, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, many of the major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and give us a review and also subscribe. And as always, I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Come join the conversation as we aim towards the truth. And the funny thing about truth is that you can't really put it into words, because every time you put the truth into words, you create a linear narrative out of something that is non-linear. The truth is non-linear. It's not... It's, it's, if you really recognize the truth right now, you 
mind wouldn't know what to do. It'd be overwhelmed by beauty and pain. Or it's, it's something that is beyond our linguistic capability to represent. But that doesn't mean that the language isn't helpful. Language can point us in the direct, right direction, but it's, it's, not, it's not the truth itself. And so, come join this collective inquiry into the truth. Find me on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast with your friends. Uh, most people don't have the ability to let go of this linguistic understanding of the way that the world works and just aim for the truth regardless of what the language tells us uh, and so i think what i'm doing with this the show is is necessary for us because as we enter this stage of uncertainty uh, and we are most definitely entering an age of uncertainty and as we do it's really really important that we stop paying attention to what the mind is telling us all the time doesn't mean to say that the mind doesn't have its place. The mind obviously has its place, but it's just one of the senses. It's just one of the tools that we can use. We can use the mind, we can use the feelings, we can use our actual senses. Uh, we can check our intuition with other people because sometimes the intuition tells us the wrong thing as well. Sometimes the intuition is wrong. So it, we, can't, we can't rely on any one tool to get us there. So come join the show, find us on iTunes, Find us on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I, uh, and come join the, this inquiry for truth.